pray. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and minds to hear from your word. By your spirit, by your word, by your sacraments, change us to be more like Christ. Equip us and encourage us in all areas of our lives to live kingdom first every day of every week of every year for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. So, lady, I read her story this week. Her name is Mickey. And she'd been married six years. And she began to feel like something was off in her marriage. You know, which all of us have those points where we kind of feel like a little disconnected from your spouse. Um, she described it as she began to feel like there was a wall of glass between them. They could see each other, but she felt like something was just off. And she began to pray, ask the Lord to help her, to help him, to help the marriage. And her husband kept assuring her that everything's okay. Like, I, I know you feel like something's off, but everything's okay. Um, you know, kind of implying that maybe it was in her head. And she told a friend that she felt like in most areas of her life, God was responding. In most areas when she prayed, she felt like God was there, except for this, this very important foundational relationship in her life where God was just silent. Went on for eight years. Eight years she sought God about her marriage, waiting for God to heal, waiting for God to reveal, waiting for God to change hearts, waiting for God to do something. Here's how she described it. It was a torturous time, but it brought me to a place of brokenness before the Lord. I couldn't make God tell me what was happening to my marriage. I couldn't make him fix it. I believe he was teaching me to give up control and submit to his timing and plans. And that sounds great. Doesn't that sound spiritual? I mean, isn't that what we all want to, you know, that's what we hear sometimes, right? God's just working on me. Well, at the end of the eight-year period, the truth came out. He'd been having an affair. And when it came out, rather than God changing things or fixing things or this man wanting to work on his marriage, he filed for divorce. And she snapped. And here's what she told a friend. I thought if I was faithful, surely God would restore my marriage. I remember throwing my Bible on the shelf and saying, I'm done with you, God. Stay out of my life. That is pretty real. What do we do when God is silent? Maybe in your life you've never had quite that, but I can't imagine there's a person in this room that at some point you weren't praying and God wasn't answering. Now, there wasn't a point where you wanted God to step into something that was really important and it was just quiet. Maybe for years, eight years, 
What do we do? How do we get through that? What does that mean? As we look at the story this morning, this is where the Israelites are at. They're in a situation, you heard the reading from Exodus, and by the way, I know it was a little longer than normal. Uh, this is normal for us, this is what I do. Um, I usually cut the readings. Not that I don't like the Bible, I do, but the readings are long, some of them are really long. In fact, this reading actually was supposed to be longer than that. I usually cut them because I know our culture, our attention span's not real long. Um, unless I'm putting it on a video and making it very entertaining, it can be hard to get through the entire thing. But I thought it was important that you hear the whole backstory. Hey, here's what's happened. God, remember that, God brought them to Egypt. They have multiplied. Things were going pretty good for them. And then all of a sudden, there is a ruler that comes to power that starts to fear the number of Israelites. And rightfully so. If you're a foreign ruler and they're within your borders and you don't really know who they are, of course you're going to fear them. And so he begins to work them like slaves. He begins to make their lives miserable. And on top of that, his other plan is let's make sure they can't multiply as rapidly. Let's take care of all the male children as they're born. And when the midwives begin to ignore that, he just says to everybody, throw them in the Nile. That's a bad situation, especially when you're not in control. How many times have you been in a situation where you have no real control over it? You can't do anything. All you can do is just go, God, please. Like, I need you. And yet, God's quiet. Here's what happens. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We're right at verse 1. Things look really, really bad for the Israelites. Doesn't seem to be a way to get out of it. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Okay, two Levites. We've got priestly people here. The woman conceived, and I can't help but thinking, if I'm them, you come together. Um, by the way, they've had two other children. I know verse 1 sounds like they just got together. Um, they have two other children. Miriam and Aaron. Uh, Miriam's the oldest. Um, and they're having another kid. And, and, and I can't help but wonder a few things. Number one, why would you have a kid knowing what Egypt was doing? Is that just faith? Um, is it an accident? Is it an inability to control themselves? Like what? That stands out to me a little bit. Like They're in the midst of something really difficult, and they have a 50-50 shot. And you can imagine them getting pregnant and Imagine the joy, right? We're gonna have a kid. And yet imagine the fear. What if it's a boy? I mean, you, you look at your daughter Miriam and you think, oh, if we could just have another girl, she'll be safe. But what if, you look at Aaron, what if it's another boy? And so they conceive, they have a boy. And when she saw, and remember the midwives, they got a good one. 
because the midwife went ahead and delivered the baby. And, and when she saw that, the, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Um, I kind of laughed when I read that because it's a very awkward translation. A fine child? Like, do you look at your kid and go, oh, you're fine. I, go, I don't even know what that means. Uh, here's what it probably means. Healthy. Most likely what it means is she looked at her child and he was healthy. He was, he, like, he deserved to live. Like, this is, we got to do something to save this child. There's nothing wrong with a child. And so she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, um, she took him in, she nursed him, she raised him, she played with him, she did all those things that all of us did with our kids when they were little. But after three months, he's getting too big, he's getting too loud, she's having a harder time hiding him, eventually they're going to find him, she's got to do something. But what can she do? That's her situation. What options do, does she have? She can't conquer Egypt The Israelites can't conquer Egypt. She knows what the law is. This child is in danger, and so she makes what she feels like is her only choice. And it's a choice that probably she's trusting God with it, but she makes this choice. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it. She placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She takes the child out of her home. And maybe that is because if, if they get caught with her having the child, they will definitely kill the child because the child will be with a Hebrew family. And they'll kill that child. And would there be repercussions for, their, for the rest of her family for their disobedience? What about her other son? What about her daughter? Now, if I take the child and put him in the basket, maybe something good will happen. At least they're not in my home. And maybe, I don't want to think this way, but maybe she couldn't bear to see the child get ripped from her and killed. And so she thought, I'll put the child in the basket and maybe he'll just die naturally. And there's all kinds of things she could be doing, but she feels like she has no options. And so she takes this child and puts the child in the basket. And then walks away. Do you imagine how hard that moment was? This child grew in her for nine months. She had three months with this baby. And then she had to put this child, and then she starts walking away. Could you imagine every step and how heavy her feet must be? Could you imagine the guilt, the doubts, the questions? Is this right? Can I do something else? I mean, all those things going on. Have you been in those moments? I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. Did I make the right decision? I've only got two bad decisions. Have you ever had only two bad decisions? This is where she's at. And here's what you don't see in any of those verses. There's nothing from God. Doesn't that make it that much more difficult? Isn't that what makes the challenges so challenging at times? Is that I'm going through something and God is quiet. And this is not new. The silence of God. This is Job. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand 
and you only look at me. Remember me sitting here in silence and just looking at all of you, not saying anything? That's Job. Here's David, and I know that many people think of this as Jesus, and Jesus did say part of this, but David said it originally. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Have you been there? God, I keep crying out, but you're not answering. I keep asking, but you're just quiet. You're not fixing anything. You're not even making me feel better, let alone fixing my problem. There's a song by Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God. Here's some lyrics from it. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. What do we do when God is silent? For about the last year or so, God has been very quiet in my life about some very significant things. And it has been really hard. And he still is. It's not over. Whatever it is God's doing, it's not over. And I can tell you that over the last year, I've had more ups and downs spiritually, emotionally, than I can remember for a long time. Because God isn't answering right now. I'm praying and seeking and begging and crying out and I could say David's words. Are you gonna do anything? And it's hard. On my good days, I sound like Mickey's first quote. God's doing stuff. God's teaching me to submit. God's working in my life. On my bad, I feel more like her second quote. I'm so tired of this. I planted a church for your sake. Uprooted my family and moved them for your sake. And yet, you can't help with this. Good and bad. Why the silence? Why is God silent? Um, I'm going to tell you a couple things that are true. I don't know if they're true of you. Well, some of this is true of your situation. I guarantee you. Here's number one. It's not because you're a second-rate Christian. It's not because you are somehow lesser than the people around you that God is speaking to. In fact, sadly, it might be the opposite. It was with Job. The book of Job starts with a description of Job being the best faithful man on the planet. That's the guy you're going to be quiet with? Yes. 
Abraham, the father of the faith, he will go 23 years and God will break the silence one time in 23 years. Here I am. God says, move to Frisco. Uproot your family all 10 miles. And go to that terrible place called Frisco. And now for one year, God is quiet. And I'm beating on heaven's door going, I deserve more than this. What about Abraham? I want you to get up, leave your family inheritance, move to a land you've never seen, and then I'm not going to talk to you for 10 years. Good luck. Oh, wait, here you go, Abraham. Keep going. I'm with you. And in 13 years, I'm not going to talk to you. You can't say Abraham was a second-rate believer. If you are experiencing the silence of God, it might be because God actually does trust you. God wants to do something in your life and mine. And yes, on my good days, I can accept that. And on my bad days, I'm not so sure. John Bloom, um, he wrote these words about the silence of God. Um, he said, why is it that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? Why is water so much more refreshing when we're really thirsty? Why am I almost never satisfied with what I have, but always longing for more? Why can the thought of being denied a desire for marriage or children or freedom or some dream create in us a desperation we previously didn't have? Why is the pursuit of earthly achievement often more enjoyable than the achievement itself? And this is what he says in summation. Do you see it? There's a pattern in the design of deprivation. It draws out desire. Absence heightens desire. The more heightened the desire, the greater the satisfaction. And then he quotes a couple things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the hungry and the thirsty who will be satisfied. It is those who are mourning that will know the joy of comfort. It is longing that makes us ask, emptiness that makes us seek, and silence that makes us knock. Is it possible that the silence of God is meant to drive us to God in ways that his speaking never could? My six-year-old son has grown extremely fond of Legos. Loves Legos. And recently... Uh, we bought him his biggest Lego set. It's this giant bridge, 1,092 pieces. Took him three days to put this thing together. Um, one of those days, he comes into our room when I am asleep. And he comes in and he's got his blanket over his shoulder and he walks in and I'm kind of looking. It's, you know, there's some light coming through the door. And I'm like, buddy, what is it? And I mean, I'm feeling so tired. I'm like, I slept so poorly that night. And I'm just thinking, golly, I need like, I don't know, six more hours of sleep or something. I feel terrible. And he goes, Daddy, I can't get a piece off. Can you come help me? I'm like, oh, God, already, you know, you're up. And so I get up, and I'm, you know, walking out with him. And, and again, I'm just feeling so exhausted. I happen to glance at the microwave. It's 1.10 a.m. 
No wonder I'm exhausted. What are you doing, kid? But he just loves his Legos. Yesterday, he finally finished that bridge. I mean, completely done, got it all put together, got the cars put together, got the people put together, all of it. It's this Spider-Man Marvel bridge. And I go upstairs, and he is playing some weird makeup game with his brother, completely ignoring his Legos. I about threw a fit. I was about ready to lay in and punish him and ground him for not playing with his Legos. Three days, this expensive set of Legos, and he's like, I'm done. I'm going to go over here and do this other thing. He, he's, he was playing on, he took this, we had this old crib mattress. He was underneath it, and his brother was rescuing him. Spider-Man could have done that from the bridge. But there's something about the journey the lack of not having that drives us. It keeps us going. I, I can tell you without a doubt, I was never closer to God than when my daughter was going through chemotherapy. Never. Now, I don't ever want her to do that again. I don't want anybody to. But I was never closer to God than during that point. I can't tell you why God is silent in your life. I won't pretend to. I can't tell you that even this answer is exactly the answer. I can tell you that this is true, that the silence and the absence does draw us in ways that the presence does not. However, on my bad days, I don't really want to hear that. So what do we do? What do we do when God is silent? Look back at your text. Verse four, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Um, I think it's interesting, um, and I'm, I'm making things up right now. It's all conjecture. Just kind of go with it. The mom, in all of her pain, she, and again, I'm going I'm to give her a benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say she has faith, but she has no answers. And so she leaves the child in the hands of God. Um, the sister both has something similar where she's there and she's not stepping in, and yet she's still there. And I can't help but wonder at times, in the silence of God, do I have a faith where I've just kind of resigned myself and I've basically given up? I'm saying, God, I trust you, but I've basically given up? Or am I saying, God, I am hurting, I don't have answers, I want to know where you are, but I am also going to wait on you. And when you act, I'm going to be ready. And I feel like Miriam is doing that, like she's waiting she wants to know how things are going to go. And here's what happens. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Oh, what a scary moment. What a scary moment. She's watching. She's hiding. She sees her baby brother in the river. And she's waiting for somebody to come. And then who shows up? The daughter of the man that has proclaimed these children need to die. Could you imagine her heart just start racing? Her mind going, what do I do? What can I do? Do I jump out there and grab this baby? Like, and then the, what are they going to do to me? And it's not just the Pharaoh's daughter, but it's the women with her. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, you've got to be Miriam going, there's no doubt they're going to see it. I know she put the basket among the reeds, but they're going to see it. There's too many of them. What do I do? Keep going. 
she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and took it. And she opened it. She saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And I can imagine Miriam going, oh, please, stop crying. You're just gonna annoy her. I mean, you're just gonna make it worse. Like, just be really cute. Make googly guys at her or something. I mean, just stop. Now, Miriam doesn't get this next line. She took pity on him. She doesn't get that line. What she gets are these words. This is one of the Hebrews' children. And that line could have been said in any number of ways. And I can imagine Miriam thinking it's going to be said, this is one of those Hebrew children. we got to get rid of him. But that pity that we know she felt had to have come out. She had to have heard it. She felt compassion. She pitied the child. She doesn't announce this is one of the Hebrews' children to kill it, but out of compassion and pity, she announces it. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, and that's her move. Here's the faith component. I'm waiting for something to happen. And when it starts to happen, she steps out. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Notice the question. She doesn't step out and say, can I help you? And I'll leave it up to you to figure out what that means. She steps out and gives her the answer and presents the question almost in a, here's the most obvious thing. Shall I run and grab a Hebrew woman to nurse this child? I know you're feeling pity for him. I mean, it's a great move on her part. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. Here's that move as she steps out. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. What a moment. I mean, the mom hasn't even had time to fully grieve yet. The mom has walked away and she's struggling with all of her own emotions and her guilt and everything else. And then here comes her daughter. Hey, mom, I have news you are just not going to believe. I may have to say it more than once because you're gonna hear it and think that like I'm making things up or you didn't hear me right. Go, the girl said, and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. What a change from I'm giving my child up because I have no way of rescuing him to, and, and if the historical records are accurate, um, in this situation where there was an adoption and they needed a wet nurse, she could have had the child for as long as the first three years of his life. And she's being paid for it by the Pharaoh who wants him dead. I mean, just hear the irony, hear the twist. The mother gets to take her son and raise him for a couple of years. And then eventually she's gonna hand him off, but she's gonna hand him off to a home that is gonna give him an education she would never have been able to. I mean, as parents, no matter how hard it is, we would do whatever is best for our kids, would we not? Could you imagine this moment, as hard as it is, at least she's saying he's gonna live and he's gonna be raised in the royal house. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. How does this help us? What does this mean for us? How do we deal with the silence of God? Here's the only way that I can give you. Believe 
the king's love so that you can trust the king no matter what is happening. Let me tell you something about Moses' story. There have been hints throughout the story that God was working. There have been hints throughout the story under the surface that God was doing something. Let me give you a few of them. You didn't have to know the detail that both of them were Levites. You also, that, that word fine that I said is kind of weird and probably she meant healthy, it's a very particular Hebrew word. It is the word that is used in Genesis chapter one when God is evaluating creation. That word good, that is the exact same word. And it's still an odd word, except Moses is going to ultimately be part of a new creation of the people of God. And if you think that's weird and making that up, the word for basket, it is only used one other time in the Hebrew scriptures. It is the word for the ark in Genesis. That word is what is used to describe the basket, the ark. When, she, when, when Pharaoh's daughter calls him Moses and says, because I drew him out of the water, just think of the irony of this. She rescued him from the waters that were supposed to be his death so that he, many years later, will rescue the entire nation of Israel through the waters that should have been their death but will be the death of the Egyptians that wanted to kill them. All the way through this story, the hand of God is seen. All the way through, God is working. Now, you may say to yourself, that's all well and fine, but you might have noticed I'm not Moses. Sure, God works in the life of Moses, but I'm average Joe. Why would I think God's working in my life? So we have these things that you're starting to see. They're in your bulletin. They're called convictions. I'm going to tell you what they are, um, but I want to tell it to you uh, based off my family. Right, my family has certain convictions in our household. What convictions are is they are things that establish your environment. Um, they establish uh, kind of the culture. Um, here's one of them for our home. We share. That's a value to us. We share. Right, we share everything. Uh, we share food. We share Legos. We share time. We share. And we push it with our kids. And when one of our kids doesn't share, we make a deal out of it. Because that is a value for us. Sharing. Here's another value for us. Bacon. Bacon is a value in our home. Right? We have bacon as often as we can in many different forms. Because it's a value to everybody in our home. Everybody likes bacon. We talk about giving a lot of things up. We don't give up bacon. It's a value for us. Here's another value in our home. Spontaneously breaking out into song. If you think that musicals are not realistic, come to our house sometime. Come stay with us for a while. The McFarlands spent five days with us, and they got to hear. Our family sings about everything. Like, you don't walk in and you say, hey, I'd like to play Legos. You walk in and go, Daddy, will you play Legos with me? That's what we do. We like sing. We make up songs. We take musicals and we change the words all the time. Um, we make games out of it. We like to sing. And if you can find something where you can share it and it's about bacon and we can sing it, 
I mean, the Bowmans are in, right? If you want us to come over, that's all you need. That is a culture for us. The convictions that you see in your bulletin, that's the culture that we're trying to develop at redemption. Here's one of those things. No superstars. Everybody has value. Everybody has purpose. Whether you are the preacher, you are the reader, you're working in Sunday school, you are just sitting in a chair listening. You have value. God thinks you have value. At some point, I encourage you to go read Psalm 139. Just read it, the whole song. Read the details that David is describing about how God knows him. All these little intimate details from the formation of David in the womb to all the days of his life. Jesus will talk about being more valuable than the pharaohs, that he knows all the hairs on your head. That's not like an exaggeration. It's how much he knows you. Do you remember the woman at the well when Jesus comes and talks to her? And he doesn't just say to her, like, I think you're special, I like you. He talks about knowing her. Isn't that how we know how much people actually care about us? Is they know us? I mean, how does it make you feel when somebody does something for you and it wasn't something that they like, it was something they knew you liked because they knew you. God knows you and cares personally for you. And that passage in Romans 8, 28, for God works good for everybody that he loves who's been called according to his purpose. Every single person. God loves you so deeply. He knows everything about you. Every struggle you're going through. Can you hold on to that love? I read something this week, and I have to share with you, because it is this idea. A woman named Amy Rosenthal was diagnosed with ovarian cancer two years ago, and she's written a couple of different things, um, but here was a particular column that she wrote. This is the title of the column. You may want to marry my husband. Imagine writing that column. But here's what she said. I've been married to the most extraordinary man for 26 years. I was planning on at least another 26 together. As for the future, allow me to introduce you to the gentleman of this article, Jason Rosenthal. He's an easy man to fall in love with. I did it in one day. And she goes on to describe her day. But a few other things she says. First, the basics. He's 5'10", 160 pounds, with salt and pepper hair and hazel eyes. The following list of attributes is in no particular order because everything feels important to me in some way. He's a sharp dresser. Our young adult sons often borrow his clothes. Those who know him or just happen to glance down at the gap between his dress slacks and his dress shoes know that he has a flair for fabulous socks. He's fit and he enjoys keeping in shape. If our home could speak, it would add that Jason is uncannily handy. On the subject of food, man can he cook. 
After a long day, there is no sweeter joy than seeing him walk in the door and plop a grocery bag down on the counter and woo me with olives and yummy cheese that he's procured for before work, after work for the evening's meal. Jason loves listening to live music. It's one of our favorite things to do. I should add that our 19-year-old daughter, Paris, would rather go to a concert with him than anyone else. He's an absolutely wonderful father. Ask anyone. See that guy on the corner? Just go ask him. He'll tell you. Jason's compassionate. He can flip a pancake. He paints. He loves artwork. Well, I'd call him an artist except for the law degree that keeps him downtown from 9 to 5. If you're looking for a dreamy, Jason's your man there too. He has an affinity for tiny things. Tastier spoons, little jars, a mini sculpture of a couple sitting on a bench, which he presented to me as a reminder of how our family began. He's the, that's the kind of man Jason is. If he emerges, if he, this is a man who emerges from the mini-mart or gas station and says, give me your palm, and voila, he gives me a colorful gumball. He knows that I don't like white ones. My guess is you know enough about him now, so let's swipe right. Wait, did I mention that he's incredibly handsome? I'm going to miss looking at his face. The details. See, she didn't have to actually come out and say, I love him a whole bunch. She told you everything about him because she knows him so well. That's how God knows us. That's the love that he has for us. I stay, say this without reservation or apology. God is working in your life. I don't care who you are. God is working in your life. If you love him and are called him according to his purpose, he's working in your life. Even in the silence. I have to tell myself that, by the way, quite often. I have to remind myself God is working in my life. Because it doesn't always feel that way. But God is working. And if you can believe the king's love for you, you can hold on to that work in a way that is really hard to do it otherwise. God loves you, even in the silence. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Lord God, silence is hard, especially when we're not hearing from you. And yet, we know that is the way that sometimes you work. We see it in the scriptures. We've seen it through the history of the church. Many of us have seen it in our own lives. Please, Lord God, help us to trust your love for us, to trust that you are working no matter what, that we can make it through these times of silence and struggle and doubt and hardship and come out on the other side closer to you, more like Jesus, and knowing that you are using our lives for the greatest purpose ever, your kingdom, your will. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.